up, everybody? Jake here with the Fast Podcast. I am joined by my new co-host for this podcast, the one and only David Campbell, everybody. David, what's up? Uh, what's up is uh, the weather's getting better gradually and the snow has stopped. <laughs> and I wish I'd never left California. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, you were with us, was that three weeks ago? here in four LA weeks. four weeks ago. And, uh, you said you haven't had a day off since you got back home. You've been working hard. You have a new, uh, a new book coming out. Is that right? I do next Monday. And, uh, what's that on? It's on, it's it, the title of the book is Exodus, the road to freedom in a deconstructed world. Mm. So it's, uh, an attempt to present in a understandable, but non superficial way what the new testament has to say to us about freedom in a very confused pandemic stricken and divided society great okay uh and so when you're using the word deconstructed are you is that a reference to like the deconstruction movement or are you using that in a different context no it it is it's uh we we but it's uh uh it's literally true as well because our society is deconstructing in the sense mm -hmm. of disintegrating. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's the pro one of the problems with deconstructionism is prophetically named. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, they may have had the original deconstructionists had other um, probably had other ideas in mind, but actually it's very destructive. Mm -hmm. And it takes things apart and doesn't really put any adequate foundations in place. Mm -hmm. I just think that Christians have some very confused understanding it, understandings of freedom. And we get, uh, for instance, the political or philosophical uh, uh, take on freedom, and we get it all mixed up with mm -hmm. what the Bible has to say. And the biblical view is quite different. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I've written this book. And uh, Matt Chandler's kindly written a forward to it. Very so, cool. Uh, I think that it'll help people. I really do. I can't wait to read it. So that comes out next Monday. Next Monday. Okay, great. Well, we'll talk about it more um, next week. I, I guess speaking of deconstruction, um, I wanted to talk to you today on the subject of uh, the doctrine of original sin. Um, because this seems to be one of those things that uh, some people are moving away from. And actually, kind of to my surprise, uh, some people have quite an aversion to. Um, and so I think we, uh, on the, the vast Instagram, recently posted a, a clip from a conversation that we had with Alyssa Childers, um, where she was talking about uh, this doctrine of original sin. And um, I think that's struck a nerve with some people and not, not in a positive sense. So I wanted to talk to you about it, um, helping everyone to get an understanding of what the doctrine is um, and where we look in scripture to see that doctrine. And maybe we have to do this as a part two next week, uh, but talking about uh, what are some of the ramifications of doing away with the doctrine of original sin? Um, right. What, what directions can that take us in, in terms of understanding uh, our faith, um, and can it lead to some, I guess, some dangerous places? So, any well, opening thoughts? Yeah, you know, 
so I'm looking down here because I've got um, bringing the Bible off of my phone. Okay. Um, the classical place where you start with this idea, because uh, the Bible doesn't use the phrase original sin. Mm -hmm. uh, and so people can take the concept or the idea in various different directions. So that's, that's it's the same as freedom, really. It's we have to be really careful because we throw these words around and uh, we don't give them a biblical grounding. Mm -hmm. And uh, then somebody says, well, I, I reject that. And uh, we think, well, they're walking away from something the Bible says, but actually they may just be rejecting something that somebody else has put forward that isn't itself biblical. So right. it just goes to show that you've got to really uh, judge everything by scripture and of course this is the really the root of the issue before you ever get to original sin the root of the issue is what is your source of information mm -hmm. what's your source of authority um and uh if you agree that the bible is our source of authority and that that's what is going to um uh you know guide um, you be more it's going to form our views mm -hmm. and that's what we have to appeal to uh then we're talking on the same page if you and i may have a disagreement or something um and so we can say well okay uh we need to go back to what the bible has to say and examine both of our views in light of that mm -hmm. but what we often find is that for instance somebody might say well i i disagree with original sin well the question is where are they coming from? Because they may not be coming from a biblical viewpoint at all. You know, they may not uh, accept, I, I am looking to the Bible as the highest form of authority. They may not. Mm -hmm. they, may, they may consider the Bible to be kind of advisory in nature. Uh, and there's a lot of that going around where people say, well, uh, you know, some parts of the Bible were, you know, they're, they're culturally restricted. Uh, what they mean then and what they mean now and some things were applicable then but aren't now mm -hmm. or some parts yeah I can buy some parts but the other parts are kind of secondary and so now we're into a whole different ballpark where we're uh, are you know we we have two different sources of authority uh, and that's where arguments can get extremely frustrating and um, and unproductive. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is say, first of all, we're talking about this. Um, anyone that's going to question it, I'm saying, okay, uh, we can discuss what it means. There may be different viewpoints or nuances on it, but are we agreed that we're going back to the Bible to get our information mm -hmm. or not? Mm -hmm. If not, it's a waste of time. And my whole background was in liberal theology. These days, uh, they call it woke. Um, but really woke, whatever that is, is just a regurgitation of, uh, 300, 200 and 300 year old, uh, uh, liberal theological viewpoints. We've gone down this road before. There's absolutely nothing new. I haven't seen anything in people quote unquote, deconstructing their faith or, uh, taking a woke position or whatever. I haven't seen anything in it that I didn't study 50 years ago 
when I was an undergraduate or when I did my graduate studies um, in the context of liberal uh, institutions, which I did. I largely didn't attend evangelical institutions. My whole formative education was in mainline liberal schools of theology. So I'm intimately acquainted with it. And I just see a recapitulation. It's a cyclical, it's just coming around again. Mm -hmm. And it, like the Bible says, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I say all that just to say uh, somebody that comes along and thinks they've just discovered the latest thing and you're a little bit um, out of date and you should get with the program. Actually, they haven't discovered the latest thing at all. It's hundreds of years old uh garbage that for the most part has been thoroughly disproven by competent mm -hmm. scholarship mm -hmm. because most of the foundations of liberal theology which are the same thing as what's you know peddled around today under the woke label mm -hmm. most of it has been refuted by decades and decades of careful biblical scholarship which has moved um progressively, if I could say it this way, it has moved progressively in a more and more conservative direction for probably 50, 75 years now, since the peak of liberal theology. So I, that's all an enormous background. But um, my, uh, uh, in, in discussing quote unquote original sin, um, the first place you go to is Romans chapter five. And in Romans chapter five, Paul says, uh, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And then, as he often does, he gets caught in the middle of a sentence and he mm -hmm. goes off on another tangent. Mm -hmm. um, Love Paul and, for that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, well, he was a preacher. And uh, uh so we have to kind of be very careful how we take this this apart. But obviously, he's talking to Adam. I, I mean, he's talking about Adam. Right. And uh, this is uh, and, Romans and 5, beginning verse 12. Thing, he's, same thing he, in Romans 5, verse 12. And it's the same thing he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. He says, that in Adam, we all died and Christ were made alive. So he's taking the Genesis story and the Genesis story uh, of the fall doesn't explicitly address the issue of uh, the, it doesn't sort of explicitly address the issue of the consequences of Adam's sin, because that's what we're talking about. What are the consequences of Adam's sin? Um, but Gen the story in Genesis is, is pretty clear that Adam and Eve fell into disobedience. Mm -hmm. They got kicked out of the garden uh, and, uh, and came under a curse. And then as the story unfolds, uh, in Genesis, instead of getting better and better, it just sort of, it's, it's the con it looks like the consequences mm -hmm. of what happened in the garden, uh, continue to unfold. Now I have to stop right there because here comes the issue of the historicity of the garden. And I haven't got the time to address that, uh, in this, but uh, I do want to say, uh, and I'm, you know, I, I have to, I, I don't know what else to do, but to put in a plug for Theos University, which I have done a, a whole pile of courses on, um, but I have done a course on Genesis 1 to 11, and there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, on that where Christians uh, get 
get portrayed as mm-hmm. um, young earth, you know, portray Christians get portrayed as mm-hmm. as proposing a um, a view that's absolutely irreconcilable with science. And actually, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. If you if you read the works of Professor John Lennox, Oxford University, and a multitude of other eminent scholars, uh, including atheist scholars who uh, one of I, I've got to be careful I don't digress too far here, but um, it's like building blocks. You see, you you talk about a disagreement somebody's had with original sin. The problem is you have to go right back to the beginning and kind of um, uh, lay the foundation stone so that you can actually have the discussion in an intelligent way. Mm. And so I'm proposing that uh, Genesis. The story of, of the fall in Genesis is, is historical, that, that it's not a myth. Right. And uh, that Adam Jesus and Eve were historical people. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and certainly Paul thought that way and Jesus thought that way. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've got a real problem with biblical authority if that isn't the case. Right. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, and I can't say in the context, I can't explain it in this context because I did a, done a whole course on it, that there's lots of, of uh, scientific credibility to Genesis to the point where uh, a man called Andrew Parker, who is the was may still be the director of the Natural History Museum in London, where uh, it's a great place. We'll be in London in a week or so. We might even take our grandkids there. It's one of the top places in the world. Uh, and he's, he's an atheist. He's an evolutionary biologist but he wrote a book called the Genesis Enigma. Mm. And he says in it, how is it that uh, somebody that didn't know anything about modern science got it, got it so right Mm -hmm. uh, and expressed an account in a way that only, uh, only the very latest 21st century scientific discoveries could have verified. And what's he referring to there when he says got it so right? What, What is it there that he's talking about? The uh, how can the Genesis account have got the creation of the universe so accurately recorded? Mm. Uh, and uh, if for anyone's interested, uh, Professor John Lennox has written um, just Google. He's written some books. He holds a chair at Oxford University, so um, he knows what he's talking about. And he mm. quotes, you know, uh, all sorts of other works. So I had said that. Uh, don't laugh me out of the room if you're very sophisticated, because I know in Los Angeles people are sophisticated. We have, uh, we have listeners around the world. Well, then, outside of Los Angeles, we're just a bunch of hicks. But, you know, <laughs> you Californians portray yourself as sort of the best thing since sliced bread. So, anyway, uh, I'm just uh, trying to cover all the bases here. But don't laugh me out of the room because I say I believe in the historicity of Genesis. So I do. And if you believe in that, uh, then the account there gives a pretty cataclysmic, you know, um, portrayal of what happened as a result of Adam's sin. So when the Apostle Paul comes in Romans 5 and writes, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin Mm -hmm. and so death spread to all men Mm -hmm. and when he uses the word men it's generic in greek anthropos anthropoi he means women as well Mm -hmm. um so we could say death spread to all people because all people sinned so that paul is 
is a legitimate interpretation, uh, exegesis of Genesis, uh, absolutely uh, accurate interpretation of Genesis, where he's saying the result of the fall of Adam and Eve and of their sin was that we have lived in a fallen state ever since. And that's what we're talking about when we mm -hmm. talk about original sin. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess, so can, you, can we pause really quick and just in a, uh, in, in the most approachable, accessible way possible, can you define what does the doctrine of original sin say? Well, uh, it, original sin is the uh, idea that all of us have been directly affected mm -hmm. by Adam's sin, mm -hmm. not just boiling it down to, uh, uh, you know, to its simplest form. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, uh, and so, um, uh, where Paul so there's, there's, uh, various, um, uh, sort of theological discussions that have been held on uh, around the exact wording of what he's saying here. Mm -hmm. Uh, half of which are on this little word because all sinned mm -hmm. and that's been pretty, pretty much resolved. So, and I want to, the only reason I say that is not to look smart, but um, because I followed one or two comments from your previous podcast where someone claimed, I think, that this all went back to Augustine, who right. incorrectly translated. Uh, and I'm, I'm not actually sure that's correct. I don't know if all, I don't think Augustine did incorrectly translate it, but there was an incorrect translation. Uh, and so death spread to all men in whom all sinned. In other words, they sinned in Adam, but that is, that's an incorrect translation of the Greek. So we can say because all sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. And so the idea is that um, uh, we also have sinned. So uh, how can I explain it? Paul is saying uh, where he uses the word sinned, it's always, it's never, you know, um, when he says we've all sinned, he means we've all sinned. He doesn't mean that, uh, that Adam sinned and we've somehow inherited something biologically, mm -hmm. so to speak, through the genes um, or through procreation. Which is uh, kind of how Augustine took it, right? That was now, the I'm not necessarily sure that Augustine did take it that way, mm -hmm. uh, actually. Um, uh, but, uh, I could find out, um, mm -hmm. because I, I was doing some reading on this yesterday on exactly what Augustine did and didn't say, you don't mind if I kind of turn around and swivel a little bit here. Not at all. That's what podcasts uh, are for. We stay on a swivel. Yeah. Uh, and I might just, I, I guess while just, you're doing that, would it be fair to say that uh, what we have received from Adam, not biologically, but what we have received through Adam, I guess, could you say covenantally? Is that the best way to understand it? Is that uh, Adam is kind of a, um, a representative of a covenant that God had with mankind. And because he failed in that covenant, we have received from him an inherited uh, guilt, but also propensity towards sin. And Jesus, rather, who is our new representative, 
of the covenant that we have um, imputes to us his righteousness and uh, some yeah, kind so of in, new heart, some kind of yeah. new propensity, new desires. In uh, yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to. I've got a long quotation from Augustine here, which is in Latin, which I can read, but not in the context of this podcast, and still <laughs> remain coherent. So uh, there are about a half a dozen different in, uh, ways of understanding the Greek in in this particular verse, but. Um, the best way of understanding it is that Adam sinned, that it had a cataclysmic effect on everyone following, uh, but that we also have sinned and are responsible for our sin. Mm -hmm. And so, because the Bible teaches that we are all responsible for our sin. Right. I mean, even in Romans in chapter one, Paul's talked about, uh, you know, we, we've all, we all know who God is. The, the God has made enough evidence of himself made known to make us accountable and responsible, uh, even without hearing the gospel. And yet we've rejected and turned away from him. So you, there, it isn't that, that Paul is saying, um, well, Adam sinned and therefore it's fated. You know, there, there's no alternative. Uh, we don't have any free will, um, uh, and because if that's the case, then God can't hold us responsible mm -hmm. for, for our own sin. But what he's saying is that through Adam's actions, uh, this whole world was corrupted mm -hmm. and we are born into a corrupted world. And the fact of the matter is that all of us in this corrupted world sin mm -hmm. and God but we we sin of our own free will mm -hmm. it's not something that we're forced to do we we do it and uh we're we're accountable for it um and so there's a, a mystery to it in the sense that uh you know how is it that uh that god could hold us accountable for our sin when we're born into a fallen world but the answer to that is that God gives us the ability to respond, even in the midst of this disaster, but, but we choose always to rebel. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, our best efforts never turn out to be good enough. Um, and, uh, and this is somehow linked in with the biblical story of the ruination of creation through what Adam did. And then Paul um, says, but by comparison, but by contrast, Christ has brought in a whole new possibility. Christ is here to reverse the curse. Christ is here to give us the possibility to be right with God. And what he did is so much greater than what Adam did, because the sin of rebellion of Adam against God certainly merited the punishment that Adam received, which was really the punishment of physical death. Otherwise, he, otherwise he would never have died. So the sin and rebellion merited the punishment of physical death. And ever since then, millions and millions and mil millions of people have compounded that sin. And yet such is the grace of God that the righteousness of the one man, Jesus Christ, who mm -hmm. did come into this world and who broke the power of that curse by living a perfect life, wholly mm -hmm. acceptable to God, mm -hmm. that that 
and and then taking the punishment for our sins on his sinless shoulders Mm -hmm. has brought us into um, a place of reconciliation with God. Just to be clear, right? Like we are saying, and this is, this is what I believe. We are saying that we are not born good. We are not, let me say it this way. We're not born uh, free from sin, but because of Adam's fall, that has had such an effect on humanity that when we are born into the world, it's not just that we're born into a world that is corrupted. We are born and are ourselves already corrupted. We already have a uh, a propensity within ourselves towards sin. Yeah, and and uh... because it, and I think that's important, right? Because if if we are born good, and if I understand it right, the reason Augustine uh, gave language to this this doctrine of original sin is because he was refuting uh, a heresy, right? He was refuting Pelagius, right? And Pelagianism is the belief that in fact we are born, I guess, independent of sin's corruption, and therefore are able to merit salvation by resisting sin do i do i have that right i'm sure it's yeah not perfect, that's but. that that's correct and and so pelagius taught that basically you could save yourself and uh uh but the only reason you you can hold a position like that is if you actually minimize what sin is and of course the pharisees did exactly that that's what jesus was fighting the pharisees minimized the requirements of god's righteous law by reducing them. All legalism does that. Uh, So they reduce the requirement of the law to something external, for instance, um, not committing adultery. And and then they thought they had the right to earn brownie points with God and God was sort of obligated to accept them on the basis of their own personal righteousness. Mm -hmm. But Jesus said, no. He said, if you even look in the wrong direction, then that's evidence of your sin. It's far deeper than just not committing adultery. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is about that. It's about you trivialized the commandments of God. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you you, 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 you don't even understand what the d- demands of God are. And Which if is- you really understood what God requires, you would understand that, that your efforts um, fall completely short. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that um, that's the thing. Like, uh, I had a man once many years ago in our church that claimed he'd reached sinless perfection. And I was sorely tempted to go and drop a, you know, take him to the gym and drop a weight in his toe to just test whether he'd actually made that or not. Uh, I just don't know how people could be so deluded that they actually think that they can reach a state where they're as good as God is. Uh, I mean, it may, it's hard to understand how, uh, Adam corrupted the world, and we enter a corrupted world uh, with a uh, um, corrupted nature, fallen nature, uh, that is out of our control and leads us invariably to sin and rebel against God. Mm-hmm. It's hard to reconcile that with, well, how could God hold us responsible for it? But he does, and the only way I can get my head around it is 
by play, putting myself in the place of Adam and knowing that I would have done the, same, the same thing as Adam did. Right. And so would every other person that's ever lived other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there something to the idea of like what I've read a little bit is um, that it, it links into covenantal theology. What I was talking about earlier in regards to um, Adam being our representative in the covenant that God had with him and Jesus being the representative of the new covenant. Uh, he's our new head, so to speak. He's the new Adam, I believe, as Paul puts it. Is that a, a good way of understanding it? Because I under I get why people can be confronted with this truth and have a hard time going, "Wow, my you know my child is born with this this nature." But but the truth bears out, right? Like you don't need long to see a child's selfish tendencies. No, I um, I mean, have some children, and you'll find out they're not sinless pretty quick. So. Um, but yes, I mean, uh, he's, uh, Paul is trying to say, look, we're, there's, there's two humanities. There's the old humanity mm. in Adam and the new humanity in Christ. And uh, we're all under or part of the old humanity uh, in Adam. Adam was our, our head in that sense. We, he had a covenant with God. He had a relationship with God mm -hmm. and he broke it. Mm -hmm. And he broke it for all the rest of us as well. We're all in that, in that boat, in that leaking boat. Right. But now God in his mercy um, has sent his son uh, to um, endure uh, the anger of God, the anger of a righteous God against the sin of Adam and all the rest of us ever since. But, but God has, has himself determined in the person of his own son to take that punishment upon himself so that we could be restored. And that's the incredible love and mercy of God. Mm -hmm. It's also why the cross means nothing without the concept of the, of the wrath and anger of God, because, and that, and, and that gets into a, another topic, uh, which we could discuss. Um, but that's certainly what Paul, what, that's what Paul meant by the word propitiation in Romans chapter three twenty five. There's absolutely no way around it. That word in biblical Greek and in non-biblical Greek refers to the turning away of anger, of divine anger by sacrifice. And you, if you empty uh, the cross of the anger of God, um, the holiness and justice of God doesn't exist anymore. And why did Jesus even have to go to the cross in the first place? Mm -hmm. So um, on the one hand, you can say, well, God's a little unfair by judging us for our own sin when we're born into this sinful humanity. But on the other hand, um, God takes the punishment on his own shoulders to rescue out of them, us, us out of the mess that we created. Mm -hmm. So we're all in Adam. That's what, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, that's what Paul teaches. Mm -hmm. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Mm -hmm. But the good news is that because of what Christ has done, you can move out of being in the in the in the one in the mm -hmm. in Adam group and move over into the in Christ mm -hmm. group, mm -hmm. but there's no what what is for sure is there's no way that we can make that move from being out of relationship with God to into relationship with God. We can't make it through our own efforts. Our own merit, that will right. never happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, because we are we are corrupted by sin. Exactly. And, and Moses even why, said it in Deuteronomy 30, right? He said, uh, 
he says, I put before you the choice, life and death, blessing and curse. And in the same conversation, if I remember correctly, he essentially tells Israel, you're not going to be able to choose rightly, consistently. And then he says to them, the problem is with the heart. God is going to circumcise your heart. Um, and this seems to be a theme all throughout the Old Testament, like, like David prayed, created me a clean heart. Um, Ezekiel says he's going to uh, uh, remove the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, right? He's going to put, uh, God's going to put a spirit in you. And that's essentially what happens in the gospel through the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. When we place our faith in Christ, there's something inside that happens to us. We get reborn. So, so what was formerly corrupted uh, miraculously is changed. And that's not to say that our relationship with sin is completely removed, but our relationship with sin is changed. And so I, I guess that kind of gets into the doctrine of indwelling sin from there, because that's something that Paul goes on about in, in Romans 7, is that he's, he's still got a relationship with it. He said, it, it dwells in my flesh, um, but at the same time, I'm learning to conquer it because now I'm under the reign of grace as opposed to being under the reign of sin. Yeah. And uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8 have to be read eight together because and held in tension. So Romans 6 talks about freedom from the power of sin. Mm -hmm. uh, Romans 7 talks about freedom from the law is just condemnation. And Romans 8 talks about freedom in the spirit. And so uh, I believe that Romans 7 describes Paul's personal experience as, as a believer. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, 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 it shows something of the battle that we're in, but you have to read it in conjunction with Romans 8, which is that, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that God has made it possible for us to gain victory. And I want to say, um, in, in a little bit of defense of Pelagius, Pelagius was an Irish monk, and he was, uh, you know, he was a godly man, um, but he was very distressed by the sort of uh, poor state of the church in his neck of the woods. Mm. And he saw a lot of spiritual decline. And he really was what we would call a holiness preacher. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he wanted, he, he wanted uh, more holiness in the body of Christ. And he got so obsessed with it that he went overboard. I'm just simplifying here, but he got mm -hmm. so obsessed with it. He went overboard and, and, and sort of, and you can, you know, browbeating people into telling them they needed to get their act together. And you, you, you preachers can easily go over mm -hmm. the edge. You know, you can rant rave against sin and you can tell people to get their act together and stop fornicating and stop doing this and stop doing that. But the minute that we don't base everything in the grace of God, we're sunk. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have the grace of God to break the power of any kind of addiction or sin or bad habit or whatever in your life. And, and Pelagius got on such a rant against sin that he lost track of that aspect of the grace of God. Mm -hmm. But in some measure, you know, he was grieved by the moral decline that he saw. So I, you know, you want to sort of cut him some slack, but Augustine who himself had been a, a complete sinner and mm -hmm. reprobate and partier, mm -hmm. uh, Literally, uh, Augustine had a very deep understanding of sin, and he he had a dramatic conversion. And maybe Pelagius had kind of been raised in the monastery environment, you know, and he never had that exposure. I don't know, but Augustine had, and 
His life experience helped him to understand the scripture better than Pelagius did. And that's why from that day to this, you know, it's Augustine's point of view, which, by the way, Augustine really is just fairly accurately interpreting the New Testament. It's not that he invented some new doctrine. Um, and it, it's his point of view that uh, wins the day. And even in the medieval Catholic Church, uh, you know, Augustine had a big influence. It was just that they kept uh, declining into religious observances, which, which were at battle with their foundational theology. And then eventually, they kind of, you know, the kind of religious, corrupt religious practices of the Catholic Church moved them further and further away. And they began to for forget biblical theology and they began to forbid the, you know, people to read the Bible because they were scared of what would happen. Now you've moved into a religious realm, which is not truly Christian at all. And then that all got shook up by Luther and Calvin, mm -hmm. who said, well, no, you know, we've got to go back to what Paul taught, what Augustine taught and rediscover the doctrines of grace mm -hmm. because there's hope in it. You know, mm -hmm. the bad news is that we have to accept is that we're sinners that we can't lift. A, there's nothing that we can do that will ever make us, ourselves righteous before God. And uh, I just don't know how people, you know, could think otherwise. I mean, uh, it, the, you can only think otherwise by reducing the concept of sin. So if, if you're talking with people who are not non-Christians and they'll, 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 they sort of got the idea that, you know, because they buy an electric car and uh, that kind of thing, and they don't throw garbage in the streets, that they're good enough for God to accept them. Right. You know, I know I'm being a bit unfair, but that's reducing the concept of sin. That's not what we believe as Christians. Mm -hmm. Let's pause the conversation there. I think we're going to do a part two on this uh, conversation next week because we've still got a lot more to uh, chat through, and this has been very, very helpful. Thank you so much, David. You're welcome.